0: Twelve Years in the Saddle for Law and Order on the Frontiers of Texas by Sergeant W.J.L. Sullivan, Texas Ranger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twelve Years in the Saddle Chapters 18-27 through CHAPTER 18 EXCITING EXPERIENCES WHILE PURSUING BILL JAMES I went in 1891 while stationed at Canna to institute a search for Bill James who had foully murdered his brother, John, at Bill's home. James was supposed to be hiding in the Comanche Strip, so I took George Black, Frank Hofer and Billy McCauley and went to Greer County where we pitched camp on the North Fork of Red River about three miles from Navajo. We rode every day for five months and scouted the country all around there. Though our main object was to capture James, we arrested a number of criminals and put a stop to some of the lawlessness that occurred on the border. We had a number of amusing as well as exciting experiences while trying to capture James. I told James's brother-in-law one day that I thought James was in Canna Parker's camp or in that part of the strip. At that time Canna Parker's camp was near Fort Sill. The brother-in-law told me that I would be apt to find him there and I announced that I was going to take all the rangers and go to that part of the strip to look for Bill. I planned and talked about the trip for several days to make everybody think that I was really going to Fort Sill after James. My real intention, however, was to allow James's brother-in-law and other friends plenty of time to get word to him that the officers were to be out of the way on a certain date and he could come home and see his two weeks old babe which I thought he would do. Then I was to go out a few miles and drop back suddenly at the right moment and capture James. An old man who lived in the community wanted to go along with us to help us about camp and play the fiddle for us and hunt game. He was a privileged character in the community and very amusing as well as useful, so I told him he could go with us. He was elated over the thought of going with us and said he would play his fiddle at night and in the daytime he would kill all the birds on Bitter Creek for us to eat. When the day came for us to leave a number of men came to see us off. We packed our bedding and provisions in the wagon and the old man got on with his shotgun and fiddle and we started off in grand style. We traveled slowly and lost as much time as we could in order to be as close to his home as was possible under the circumstances when night came on. At six o'clock in the evening I told the driver to pull out to the left of the road. It was eight miles from any water and I remarked that we would have dry camp. The fiddler and birdman asked me what I meant by dry camp. I told him that we were to do without water. He said that he had been thirsty an hour or two and had been wishing that I would stop and pitch camp so he could get a drink of water. I told the old man that we rangers didn't drink but once a day and that the mules and horses were trained the same way. He said if he had known all this at first he wouldn't have come along. We told him that we were a little thirsty ourselves, but if he would play the fiddle for us it would help us to pass the time away and endure our thirst. The man played and sang for us a little while and then rolled up in his blankets and was soon asleep, calling hogs and sawing gourds in that good old happy way. After waiting there several hours, I decided we had been away long enough for James to have had time to reach his home, so I woke the man up and told him that we were going back to the river where we could get a drink of that good muddy water. He said that he could not understand our movements, that he thought we were to be gone several days. I told him that we would have to go and, turning to the driver and the other boys, I said that we would have to travel quietly. We had good luck in fording the river, but when we reached the other side we found two roads, one leading to the left and the other to the right. I had to study a moment to determine what we had better do. I was afraid James had caught on to us, so I sent George Black and Frank Hofer around the left-hand road and Ferris and I went the other way. I thought by doing that we would catch James even if he became suspicious and left the river to go back to his old hiding place. I told Black and Hofer that if they found the gates down they must run fast and that we would do the same thing. The two roads were only half a mile apart and I could hear a dog barking further up the road on the left and, thinking it might mean that someone had gone ahead to notify James of our coming, we ran as swiftly as our horses could carry us, all four of us reaching James' house at the same time. We quickly dismounted and the other boys surrounded the house while I knocked at the front door. A lady asked who I was and what I wanted. I told her that I was Sullivan and wanted her husband Bill. She said he wasn't there and that I had been searching her house so much that she was not going to open the door. I told her I couldn't help that and, though I was sorry for her, I made her open the door at last. She said she would not turn on a light. I told her I would attend to that part of it all right and when I went into the house I pulled a handful of matches from my pocket and lit the whole bunch at once, which made a good light. The boys outside were eagerly watching the house to see if Bill James would run out. I searched the house thoroughly, but could not find my man, and finally decided that he was not there and gave up the hunt. I was greatly disappointed in my failure, for I wanted James awful bad. He sent us a number of messages saying that we had better look out, that he would knock us out of date. If we had met him, though, we would have done what was right by the gentleman. I was satisfied after we failed to find him, that he was further from home than we thought he was, and that he failed to learn that we had left Greer County. Frank Hofer and I thought once that we had him in a cave. The cave was in the side of a big mountain, and we had to climb about two hundred feet to get to it. When we first entered the cave, Frank and I could walk side by side, but the further we went the narrower the cave got, and we finally had to walk a single file. The cave was small, but we soon saw that it opened into another one. It was very dark inside the cave, and we had to feel our way as we went. We came to a place through which we had to go sidewise, and at another place we ran across a spring. We could smell bacon, and knew by that and other signs that men had camped in there, and we were also sure that Bill James was at that moment in the back part of that cave. We came across funny things and heard strange noises, and the further we went the darker it got. Finally Frank asked me if I didn't think we were acting foolishly in going blindly into that cave. I expect we are, I replied. Let's get out, said Frank. I told him I was willing, so we groped our way out and we were glad to see daylight again. It was about thirty feet to the top of the mountain and we knew the cave must have extended quite a number of feet upward. There was lots of brush and wood on top, so we decided to throw down some of it and pile it in the cave and set fire to it and smoke the man out. Frank climbed to the top of the mountain and threw the wood down onto a bench that made off from the mountain, and I dragged it back and piled it up in the cave. When we finished our task, we ignited the wood and brush and got off a little way to wait for the man to come out. The wood blazed up in good fashion, but in a little while we commenced wondering where the smoke was going to. We soon found out, however, for the smoke and heat ascended to the top of the mountain inside the cave. but not being able to get out, it rebounded and began pouring out of the cave in great volume. The heat was intense, and we could not see which way to turn on account of the smoke. Fire gushed out of the cave, and the flames were blown against us, setting us on fire before we could get out of the way. Instead of smoking out men and fighting criminals, we were setting fire to ourselves and fighting the flames. It would have been better if we had gone on and explored the cave and left the smoking business alone but we were afraid to venture too far in when it was so dark, and we did not know what we were going to run into. Somebody told us if we had gone on to the end of the cave we might have found some money, but I hadn't lost any money in there just at that date, and Frank said he hadn't, so we thought we had no particular amount of business in there, and we decided to beat a retreat. James was finally captured in the Indian Territory by some United States Marshals, and was tried for the murder which he was alleged to have committed, but was acquitted. Before I close this story, however, I shall relate another incident which happened while we were trailing James. Early one morning, the other boys and myself went to the top of a mountain to look down upon James's house through a field glass and see if we couldn't catch James slipping into his house. While looking through the glass, I discovered a man about two miles from us and a mile from Bill's house. He was walking around another mountain and held something in his hand that shined so in the sunlight that we could see it at that great distance. Thinking that was Bill slipping away from house with his Winchester, we ran quickly to the mountain, reaching it in a few minutes. I told Hofer, Black and Ferris to run around the mountain one way, and I started around the other way. We felt sure we had Bill this time, and were so elated that we ran much faster than was necessary and were traveling at full speed when we all three reached the man at the same time. We arrested him and asked him his name. He said, I'm Rev. Joe Smith, and as I'm going to preach today, I have come out here to pray. We were dumbfounded. Noticing that the large Bible, which Brother Smith carried, had big silver letters on it, we realized that what we thought was Bill James Winchester was in reality the Holy Bible. Brother Smith showed us the little church, which was situated at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain had obstructed it from our view. We humbly apologized to the preacher, and he said that he was thankful and glad to know that it was a mistake. He laughingly remarked that he thought his time had come, and said if he could regain his composure he would go on up to the church and preach his sermon. Chapter 19 Indians on the Warpath While the Ranger boys and I were camping on the North Fork of the Red River, still in search of Bill James, we received a call to go about twenty-five miles further up the river. To protect a family who were threatened with extermination by a band of indians but we were quite busy at that time for every day nearly we had a horse thief or some other bad character to capture we went up however to see what we could do for the family who would call for help i took with me two deputy marshals jeff minette and tom mason i also took my rangers george black jim ferris and frank hofer the latter being the best indian fighter in the bunch When we reached the house where the family lived who were threatened by the Indians, we learned that a young man had killed an Indian who had attempted to steal a steer from them. The Indian was armed with a Winchester, and when the young man caught the Indian in the act of stealing, the Indian tried to shoot him, but the boy was too quick for him and shot the Indian, killing him instantly. The Indians went on the warpath and sent word to the Whites that they would kill everybody on Wolf Creek, and when we arrived upon the scene, we found them in an ugly humor. They had their faces painted up, and had made all necessary preparations to kill out the whole family of the young man who had killed a member of their tribe. We were there to protect the family, and in doing so, it was up to us six men to stand off the Indians, which seemed to us an impossible task. We felt like we were going to be killed, but it was our duty to stay there and protect the women and children from the wrath of the Kuhwahwah Indians. Those Indians looked quite fierce, and as you may imagine, we looked rather wild, too. It didn't feel a bit funny to us, and we certainly felt small when we looked at them. I was not a bit frightened at first, but for three or four days afterward I felt very shaky and constantly put my hand up to my head to see if I was scalped. We made peace with the Indians by bluffing them and making them think we would kill all of them if they attempted to fight us. We did not expect to prevent trouble that easily, and were surprised when we learned that they had decided not to fight us. It was remarkable that they were so easily subdued. If they had tried, they would have killed us all, and we often wondered why they didn't. The people, whose lives we saved, were very thankful to us, and when they had recovered sufficiently from their fright, they entertained us royally. We were given all the good fried chickens we could eat, and treated as if we were preachers and lords of England. Chapter 20 The Opening of the Cheyenne and Arapaho Strip In 1891 the Cheyenne and Arapaho Strip was opened up to settlers. Billy McCauley, Lon Lewis, John Harrington, Capt. W.J. McDonald and I left Canna to go to the opening of this strip knowing that this would be a good place to capture outlaws. We went by Mangum in Greer County and got John Byers and John Ovaltone and stopped at Oak Creek, which is about 9 miles from what was going to be the new county seat, Cloud Chief. This territory was to open up at 12 o'clock and when we reached Oak Creek we got the correct time from one of the soldiers. About 2,500 men were at Oak Creek alone, waiting for 12 o'clock to come. When the hand of my watch reached 12, I laid steel to my horse, and we all made a break for the county seat after crossing Oak Creek, which was about 50 steps from us. Men from all sides of this strip were headed for the new county seat under full speed. Wild cats, lobos, coyotes, antelopes and badgers were running in every direction. One of our posse roped a deer, and another killed one while they were all running in every direction. This was about as exciting a time as I ever experienced. Horses falling on every side, from stepping in gopher and salamander holes, and dust so thick that a man could hardly see in front of him. Our crowd made the run of nine miles in thirty-five minutes. I staked out two claims, one within a mile and the other a mile and a half from the county seat. The signal, which meant that the county seat was open for settlers, was given by a soldier firing a cannon. Up to this time there wasn't a soul to be seen in the new county, In less than thirty minutes after the signal was given this was a solid city covered with tents. We people who made the run were to get a business lot and a residence lot. I made a mistake and staked a street instead of a lot. I had quite a little argument before they convinced me that I was mistaken. We failed to locate any parties that we wanted and turned back to our headquarters in Canna. Chapter 21 a cup and saucer event. In the fall of 1892, Captain MacDonald discharged the company cook, and each ranger had to do the cooking for a week while in camp. On one occasion it was Ben Owen's week to cook, and after preparing an inviting breakfast one frosty morning at the camp in Amarillo, he discovered in setting the table that he was short one saucer, and it so happened, when the boys took their seats at the table, that Lee Queen was the man short a saucer and Queen made some remark about everyone having a saucer but him. Owens shoved his saucer over to Queen, striking his cup and knocked a little coffee out on the table, and at the same time remarked, here baby, take this one. This seems to offend Queen very much, and he threw the saucer back to Owen, striking his cup, breaking both cup and saucer. Both men jumped to their feet and pulled their guns. I grabbed both men and prevented what might have been a killing over a very small thing. I have always been glad that I was in time to prevent this shooting, and I go on the theory that it is better to be a peacemaker and prevent trouble than to make it. After a few minutes, Owen and Queen saw the folly of their acts, shook hands, and have remains to this day the best of friends. Chapter 22 A Prisoner Escapes While stationed at Amarillo, I went to Woodward, Oklahoma, after a fellow by the name of Bill Hines, who robbed a man of six hundred dollars in Collinsworth County. I caught this man, and while we were crossing the Canadian River, about a mile from Canadian City, I dropped off to sleep, as I had been on the go for three days and nights, and was worn out. I woke up in Canadian City, and found that Billy had bid me goodbye while I was asleep, and had struck a stock train and gone back to Woodward, Oklahoma. He had taken this train before I awoke after our train had arrived in Canadian City. This is the only man who ever made his escape from me. I took the train the next morning for Woodward City, but failed to catch Bell. That day, while I was searching for Bill and Woodward, three prisoners broke jail at this place. I was called on to assist the officers in the capture of these three men. I got in shape at once and joined the posse. Ex-Sheriff Love and I crossed the Canadian River one mile below where the prisoners had crossed. Toby Odom and his posse engaged in a fight with Jim Hefner and John Hill, two of the prisoners. We reached them too late to join in the fight. Both of the fugitives were killed. Ben Woodford's right arm was shot off. George Waddle, the third prisoner, was not with the party at the time of the fight, but we found him one mile from there lying down on his Winchester. Made no fight, and when called upon to surrender, he threw up his hands at once. Several of the men in the crowd said, ''Let's kill him anyhow.'' I spoke up and said, if you kill that man I'll hold you responsible for murder, as he has surrendered and thrown up his hands. Temple Houston, who was with us, spoke up and said, Sullivan, you are right. We sent for a hack and hauled the three men in, two dead and one alive. We jailed Waddle. This fellow, John Hill, was a very dangerous man. He feared nothing on earth and was known as a slick artist in the territory in his line of business. Hefner was not so desperate, but all three were bad enough. Chapter 23 The Capture of Rip Pierce I captured one Rip Pierce charged with holding up a Fort Worth and Denver passenger train with the intention of robbing the express car. He held up this train in a cut about 400 yards from the Canadian River near Tascosa, Texas. Rip Pierce was about 30 years of age at that time and was six feet two inches and a half tall and weighed about two hundred pounds when i arrested pierce he made no fight i jailed him at tuscosa i concealed myself at the jail and did not let him know it he became awfully restless and commenced walking the floor and talking to himself there were no other prisoners in the jail except him he cried and said if i ever live to get out of this scrape i will always behave myself and lead a different life when I made him make that remark I was satisfied that I had the right man DB Hill was district attorney I had a hard time locating Mr. Hill but I kept the wires hot in every direction and finally got word to him and he arrived just in time to keep Judge Pannery from releasing Pierce from the jail on a writ of habeas corpus Pierce had employed Judge Pannery to defend him in his case Judge Pannery was at one time County Judge of his county Pierce knew that the judge was a fine lawyer and I also found it out before this trial was over. After Pierce was released, he fell in love with a bunch of horses in Hall County. He fancied these horses, and at last got the consent of his mind to deprive the owner of them, and was captured and sentenced to seven years in the penitentiary. He served his time out, and has been free for several years. I learned that he had reformed and was living a good, honest, upright life, which I was very glad to know. Chapter 24 A Practical Joker Gets Into Trouble While I was at Amarillo, one Bob Keen, who was traveling from New Mexico to Amarillo, met the stage coming from Plainview to Amarillo. He held the stage driver up and made him get out of the stage, and pointing his six-shooter at him, he made the driver dance nearly two hours. After releasing him, Keen forced the driver to drink until he was pretty well under the influence of Brother Red-Eye. Keen then started on his way and the driver was satisfied he had gotten rid of him. When he had driven about three miles, however, he heard a noise behind him. He looked around, and Keene threw down on him again, and held him up, and had him to cut the pigeon wing again. The driver reported Keene as soon as he arrived in Amarillo. I was not in camp at that time, and he reported this to the rangers. Bob McClure, and one or two of the rangers, left at once, and followed Keene out to the seven-mile windmill where he had held the driver up. It commenced snowing and they returned to camp. I came in that night at 12 o'clock off a scout and they laid this case before me. The next morning I took my saddle horse and one of the state mules and got a buggy and, with Duncan Meredith, one of the rangers, I started out to find this man. The snow was nearly knee-deep to our team and covered the ground everywhere in that part of the state and caused us to lose our way several times. But we succeeded at getting out, and about sixty-five miles west of Amarilla, at Jim Ivey's ranch, I captured Bob Keene. He was tried at Fort Graham for holding the stage up and detaining the United States Mail, and was fined nearly a thousand dollars. Chapter 25 Race Thomas is Guarded I was called by Hughes Tittle, the sheriff of Greer County, to assist him in holding a mob off Jeff Adams and Race Thomas, who had killed McNews. A mob of one hundred and fifty armed men tried to take these two men from the sheriff as he went to feed the prisoners. Hughes Tittle was such a noble man, and so well known by this mob for his good qualities and bravery, that the mob would not take his life to get these criminals. Hughes wired me at Amarillo to come and assist him, in case the mob made another break. I went at once, and stayed there two months guarding the jail day and night, but the mob never returned. Race turned state's evidence, and Adams got a life sentence in the penitentiary, but was held six years in the Canna jail while the authorities waited to see who had jurisdiction over Greer County, the state of Texas, or the United States, but Uncle Sam finally fell heir to the county. Adams went to the penitentiary for life. While in jail, Adams used every means to make his escape. I was called on by the jailer of Canna to help search the jail when he found where Adams was cutting or sawing. At last we found his saw tied to him on the inside of his clothes. While bringing Adams from Mangum, he and Thomas tried every way possible to pick their shackles when night came on. We had a time getting Adams' shackles and handcuffs off, as he had broken off several toothpicks in the keyholes. We also held Race Thomas for a witness for six years. Uncle Sam agreed that the state of Texas was entitled to jurisdiction over Greer County at that time. I have not given the full details of this trial as I do not deem it of importance to do so. Greer County is 90 miles long and 78 miles wide. It is the largest county known in the world. At that time, this county was running over with all kinds of outlaws. While in the ranger service, I only searched four caves, one in Greer County, one in the Indian Territory, across the North Fork of Red River, and two in Palo Pinto County. I always felt somewhat lonely while searching these caves. I was one of the rangers who helped to guard George Isaacs at Canna when he was sentenced to the pen for life for killing Tom McGee, the sheriff of Hemphill County at Canadian City. After he was sentenced, I carried him to Fort Worth and jailed him for the contractor at the penitentiary to come and get him. He was pardoned out through a false pardon by a man by the name of Dent, who had served four years in the penitentiary. While in there, he got acquainted with Isaacs. This was during Governor Sayers' administration. Governor Sayers was perfectly innocent of knowing anything of this pardon, or anything of Isaacs being out of the pen, until he was notified by Judge Sam Cowan, a lawyer who helped to prosecute him. The officers who helped hold this court and guard Isaacs during the trial were Fred Dodge, Captain Errington, one of the old ex-Ranger captains, Charlie Stockton, Captain A.J. Payne, three Wells Fargo men, Dick Cofer, the Sheriff of Hardiman County, and myself, also several others eighteen guards in all. This is just a small sketch of this. I have not gone into details in this case, as I have in some others. Dent was captured, tried for the killing of Tom McGee, and sentenced to the penitentiary for life, and is now serving his sins. Chapter 26 A Sad Farewell I went to Canadian City one day after two prisoners who were sentenced to the penitentiary. I was called upon to take them to Fort Worth and turn them over to an agent of the penitentiary who was to take them from there to Huntsville, where the state prison is located. Reaching Canadian City, I went first to the hotel to get breakfast. As soon as I set my grip and Winchester down, I was approached by two ladies who asked me if I had come after some prisoners. One of them was an old lady, while the other was rather young-looking, and from the worried expressions on their faces, I took them to be the mother and sister of Jim Long one of the two prisoners whom I had come after. Long was sentenced to the penitentiary for forging checks on a bank in Canadian City. Answering their question, I told the women that I had come after two prisoners to take them to the penitentiary. Both of them got up from their chairs and commenced to pacing up and down the floor, sighing and groaning. After I had eaten breakfast, the old lady told me that she was Jim Long's mother and that the other lady was his wife. They asked me if they could stay at the jail with Long until the train arrived and I told them that I thought it would be all right with the sheriff. Getting the sheriff's permission also, they stayed in the jail with the prisoner until nearly train time. When the time came for me to take the prisoners from the jail, I handcuffed them together and with the sheriff and the two ladies we started for the depot. The strain was too great for Long's wife and she fainted as we were leaving the jail. Long's mother bore up pretty well under the ordeal, though it was quite an effort, but she did it on account of her daughter-in-law who fainted two more times before we reached the depot. The old lady couldn't keep the tears back, however, and she walked all the way to the depot with her arms around her son. The sheriff and Long's wife walked behind us, the former trying his best to console Mrs. Long. When we reached the depot, Long's mother leaned over and whispered to me that she had seventy-five cents at the jail and that she had given her son twenty-five cents and wanted to give him the other fifty cents too. She asked me my advice about it and I told her to give it to him if she wanted to. She gave the money to him and when we reached the depot she told me that she and her daughter had returned tickets to their hometown, but that they owed a four days hotel bill and had no money to pay it with. They seemed very much distressed about it, but I told them not to worry, that I would see that the bill was paid. I found the proprietor of the hotel in the depot and talked with him about the matter and he agreed to knock off one-third of the bill. I then paid one of the remaining thirds, and the sheriff paid the other, leaving them free of that debt. We saw that they arrived safely home, and it made us happy to think that we had soothed the broken hearts of two poor unfortunate women. Chapter 27 A Clever Thief is Caught While at my post of duty in Amarillo Captain W.J. MacDonald told me to take whichever one of the ranger boys I wanted and go to a certain ranch in the panhandle country and look after some cattle stealing that was alleged to be going on. I took Jeff Mankins, a ranger who had lately been enlisted in the service. I wanted to try his nerve, and I decided that this would be a good place, as this ranch was situated on the Texas and the Territory boundary line, and I knew that we would come in contact with many tough characters before we were through with our work in that part of the state. This cattle company boarded Madkins and me and our two horses and gave us $40 apiece every month above what the state was giving us. At that time I was corporal and drew $35 a month regularly. Madkins and I rode every day for four months looking for cattle thieves. The superintendent of this ranch and his wife and son, all three, claimed that the nesters were stealing the cattle, so we took particular pains to visit these nesters as often as we could but failed to find any beef on their tables, or beef bones lying around the place, all the beef that we got to eat would be at the general round-ups. At these round-ups, one of the nesters would kill a calf today, and in a day or two another nester would kill one of his calves, Then the superintendent of the ranch would kill a beef. This superintendent was paying a high tax to the state for so many head of cattle. This English company seemed to have gotten uneasy for some reason and sent from Austin, Texas a man to investigate the condition of their ranch. He and I had a talk. I had at that time been there only two months. I had ridden this pasture out thoroughly everywhere and had made close an investigation and I was prepared to answer this man's questions, and he interrogated me rather closely, too. He asked me how many cattle there were on the ranch that belonged to the company. I told him that I had ridden the pasture for two months, and I didn't believe that there could be over 1,500 or 2,000 head of cattle rounded up in that company's brand. What I said somewhat vexed this man, and he claimed that the company was paying taxes on 18 or 20,000 head of cattle. I told him the cattle were not on the ranch. He then asked me what I thought about the stealing that was going on. I told him that I thought there was very little stealing going on by the nesters, though sometimes they might slip a calf, but it was seldom. Then he asked me about the Lobo wolves, and I told him that I did not think they were bad, for I seldom ever saw a cow running across the prairie from one high peak to another bawling for her calf, and that I believed I could safely say to him that there was a mistake in regard to the nesters stealing the company out, but if I stayed there long enough, I would catch the parties who were doing the stealing. So I remained there two months longer, riding every day. The superintendent was furnished by the company all the horses that he and his wife and son needed a ride and all the milk cows they wanted. Outside of that, however, they were not allowed to own a horse or a cow on the inside of that pasture. I began to suspect the superintendent, and one day, during a round-up, while I was sitting under a mesquite tree, the horse wrangler, who had charge of the remouther, came up and talked with his superintendent for quite a while. It came to my mind, when this fellow rode up, that he might be able to give me some information as to whether the superintendent was acting fairly with the company or not. So I took my day book out of my pocket, and I told him that the old man and the old lady had promised time after time to give me the brands of their cattle which they owned themselves. This was not so, however, for the superintendent and his wife never had told me that they owned a cow or a calf inside of this pasture. They told me that all the cows that they needed to milk were furnished to them by the company, and the company would not allow them to own a cow and calf inside of the pasture. This remother wrangler dismounted and took my day book and wrote down a brand for the old man, a brand for his son, a brand for his daughter, and two brands that they had bought, making six brands the family owned inside the pasture. I took these brands to the bookkeeper, a nephew of the owner of the ranch who just had sense enough outside of bookkeeping to know that he was human. I asked him if the superintendent had any right to own brands in that pasture. He said that he was not allowed to own even one cow. I showed him the six brands which I had procured from the horse wrangler, and asked him if he knew whether that superintendent was running those brands in his pasture. He said he did not know it and did not think it could be possible. He asked me to give him the brands, which I did, and he sent them at once to England to his uncle. His uncle sent a man at once from England to investigate this matter. The man from England, after investigating the condition of affairs, was thoroughly convinced that the superintendent and his family had stolen this ranch nearly out of cattle so he fired the whole business of the ranch at once and put another man in his place. The new manager rounded the pasture up from one end to the other and cut the company's cattle out to themselves and counted them. He got the large sum of eleven hundred and twenty head. Madkins and I were invited one night by the former superintendent's wife to come up to her house. We accepted her invitation, and when we stepped into her room we hardly knew her. She was dressed in such fine style. Diamonds in her ears, diamonds on her fingers and diamonds on log chain bracelets and a three-hundred-dollar scarf pin. She and Madkins and I seated ourselves around a beautiful table while her husband lay on a fine sofa. Opening the conversation, the lady said, Mr. Sullivan, what I wanted to see you about is in regard to seven men on the inside of these wires. This stealing that is going on will never cease until the scalps of these seven men are taken. She then named the men over to us, and said that there was two thousand dollars apiece for the scalps of these seven men. She said she had the money ready to pay for their scalps as soon as they were turned over to her. I sat still and said nothing, but listened to her proposition. When she had finished, I looked at her and asked, Did you aim that proposition at me? Not particularly at you, Mr. Sullivan, she replied, but at anyone who sees fit to take it up. The money is ready now. I told her that the state of Texas didn't have me employed to take men's life and property, but to protect them, and that I was going to execute the law in the proper way. If you or your husband, who is lying over there on the sofa, or your son, should violate the laws of our state, I would arrest you as quickly as I would any other criminals." She saw that I was mad, and she said that she didn't mean her proposition to me, but for anyone who wanted to take it up. When we left the house i told madkins that i was a little too hasty in refusing to consider her proposition a character like that i said ought to be in the penitentiary and as district court is in session i shall lay the case before the judge and prosecuting attorney i went to town the next morning and saw those two officials and repeated the whole conversation which took place between the woman and me the night before i told them that i was going back and take up her proposition and make her pay me half the money down and take her note for the balance, to be paid when the work was done. Then I will turn the money over to you, Judge," I continued, and we will prosecute that woman and put her in the penitentiary where all such characters belong. The Judge and the Attorney both spoke up then, and said that I had made her mad and that I couldn't stand in with her any more. I told them that I could tell the woman that I refused to consider her proposition because she made it to me in the presence of the other Ranger, whom I could not trust, since he was a new man in the company and I did not know him well enough. I told them again that I could make a trade with her and we would get the papers and money for proof and send her to the penitentiary. Both of them begged me not to interfere with her, saying that she was crazy or she would not have made that proposal to me. They finally persuaded me not to get the woman into trouble and I let the case stop where it was. It seemed, however, that she was bent on getting into the penitentiary before she was through. A certain man. One of the seven whom she wanted killed lived in the pasture about a mile from her house. He had been in a shooting scrape with her son a year before, and one evening, while sitting in front of my boarding house talking to two other boarders, I saw this man riding from the post office to his home. The woman lived about a block from where we were, and the man had to pass her house on the way home. The woman had often told me that this man was always armed. So on this occasion, as he rode by on his horse, I watched closely to see if I could see the print of his six-shooter. He had on a little blue jumper coat, and I could not see any sign of a gun being on him, though it would easily have made an impression on his little coat if he had been carrying one. As I was watching him ride slowly up the street, I noticed the woman, with the gun in her hand, standing in the east corner of her yard, just a few steps from where the man whom she hated had to pass in another minute. I asked the man who ran the boarding house how long it had been since the man on the horse and the woman's son had met. He replied that they had never met, since they had the shooting scrape. I suggested to the men that we watch and see if they speak. As we were on a line with them, we had no difficulty in seeing their movements. Neither one bowed nor spoke to the other. She watched him, but he never looked to the right nor left. He must have seen her before he reached the house, but while he was passing close by her, he never turned his head in her direction, but looked straight in front of him. When he had passed her, she fired her gun twice across the road. He never even looked around to see if she was shooting at him, but rode straight ahead and soon went out of sight. It was nearly dark, and we three men were still sitting in the yard when the woman came down to the gate where we were and asked for me. I went to the gate, and she proposed that we walk up the road, saying that she wished to talk with me. After walking about forty steps, she turned to me and asked, Mr. Sullivan, what do you reckon? I told her I didn't know she then referred to the man whom i had seen on horseback and said i was standing in the east corner of my yard a while ago and that dirty villain passed by and jerked out a rubber-handled blue-barrel six-shooter and threw it cocked in my face i asked her why she didn't scream or notify me so i could arrest the man and get his gun the reason why i didn't she replied was that i thought it best for you and me to get in my buggy and go to town in the morning and i will swear out three complaints against him one for assaulting me with a six-shooter one for carrying a six-shooter, and I will also have him put under a peace bond. After telling her I would see her the next morning, I joined the two men whom I left a few minutes before and told them what the woman had said. They said that they had watched every movement that she and the man made when the man passed her house and that they could swear that the woman's statements were opposite to the truth. I then announced my intention of going to town with the woman and letting her swear out the complaints against the man. I explained that such a character should be in the penitentiary, and that it was fortunate that there was a way of getting her in there. The two men, however, begged me not to do that, saying that they did not want to see the woman get into trouble. I laid the case before a merchant, who, I afterward learned, sold lots of goods to this woman, and he begged me not to let the woman purge herself. I finally decided, myself, that it was not best to let the woman get into so much trouble, but I went to her house the next morning as I had promised and asked her if she was ready to go to town. She said she was ready to go right away, and swear out the complaints. I then told her that two other men beside myself had watched every movement that she and the man made when he passed her house, and that we were ready to swear that her charges were false as soon as she swore to them. ''Mr. Sullivan,'' she replied, ''let's drop the matter where it is, and let it go and say no more about it.'' I told her that that was the safest way for her to do that the penitentiary would have gotten her if she had sworn out those charges against that man. End of chapters 18 through 27